Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic. Last time, uh, we revealed Revan's secret identity, became the best attorney on Manon, and watched helplessly as Bastila was taken prisoner. Now, in episode 30, we visit Korriban to redeem a whole bunch of Sith and hopefully find the final star map. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. Uh, breaking news, somehow this podcast is now in the business of breaking news, at least by very def- very loose definition of the word news. Uh, on September 23rd, 2019, Delilah Dawson confirmed that the Ebon Hawk, a species of hawk mentioned in her canon novel, Galaxy's Edge Black Spire, is in fact a reference to the Ebon Hawk in Knights of the Old Republic and Knights of the Old Republic 2. We guessed that that was a probable reference to the Old Republic in Canon Alert 29 in episode 27, and now we have confirmation. When I mentioned the reference in a tweet, Dawson responded and confirmed it is indeed a reference to the Knights of the Old Republic games. We appreciate the clarification by uh, by Dawson and would welcome her appearance on the show on the off chance that she listens. Yeah, it's worth a shot, right? Um Additionally, we have a new possible origin for the name Bandon, uh, as in our dearly departed nemesis Darth Bandon. In ancient real-world history, Bandon was the name for a basic military unit during the Middle Byzantine Empire, which, according to a cursory Google search, spanned from 843 to 1204 AD. Thank you to at Evan on Twitter for pointing this out in a completely random conversation that didn't have anything to do with this show or star Wars. And now I'll turn it over to Kelsey because he actually knows stuff about military history. I, you know, I hadn't heard of the unit banded before, but I think it's a good theory. I think the, it follows the naming convention for Sith where you find ominous words in English and you drop the first syllable. So Vader from invader, um, Sidious from Insidious, uh, and um, <laughs> Abandon to get Bandon, um, yeah. which was uh, yeah. satirized perhaps best on Futurama, where eventually you get to uh, Darth <laughs> Destroyer and Darth Durer. Trocious. Yes. Darth Trocious. Darth Trocious and Darth. Yeah. No, that yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so Darth Destroyer, um, yeah, there, there are like four or five of them. Yeah, though, um, I, I also uh, fully support anything that ties uh, the Byzantine Empire to the Old Republic. It very much feels has a a Old Republic feel to it. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> onto the story. We are going to continue with Knights of the Old Republic. We are on Part 8, Korriban. When we left off, the Iban Hawk jumped to hyperspace after making a daring escape from the Leviathan in a fitting homage to the Millennium Falcon's flight from the Death Star in A New Hope. While Revan and his companions killed Fleet Admiral Saul Karath, Bastila Shan was captured after engaging Darth Malak in a duel to allow Revan and Karthanasi to escape. 
hurtling through hyperspace toward Corban, the nine remaining crew members of the Ibanhak gather to discuss their current predicament. Questions about where's Bastila? What happened to Bastila? Karth tells the group about Chan's brave sacrifice and their narrow escape, though Jolie Bindo assures everyone that Bastila is alive because Malik wants her battle meditation for the Sith. But the hits just keep on coming and they don't stop coming. Karth implores Revan to tell the group the truth of the reveal or he would be forced to. It's clear that Revan is still coming to terms with the man he used to be, but he decides to be honest and tells his companions that he was once Darth Revan. He admits he doesn't remember much of his old life except a few flashes from the vision. Some dialogue also makes it clear that Revan was visibly affected by the vision aboard the Leviathan. Mission speaks up to support Revan, saying it doesn't matter who he once was, though Karth makes a valid point that the dark side of Revan could resurface at any moment. Nice valid point, Karth. Revan tries to assure Karth it won't happen, but Onasi has been hurt too many times. He lashes out, asking why he should have to forgive Darth Revan, who was the leader of the Sith when they bombed Telos IV, killing his wife. Candorus then comes to Revan's defense, saying that Darth Malak gave the orders to fire on Telos IV and everyone knew it. Reluctantly, Karth Onasi agrees to continue working with Revan, but every companion will have something to say about the reveal. Except for Bastila, who is on Lehan suffering a full week of torture at the hands of Darth Malak. The reactions from the crew are kind of muted, all things considered. They've all been traveling together for weeks, and Revan had their full loyalty, but now it turns out he was once a really bad guy who committed unspeakable crimes. Even before he and Malak became Sith Lords, Revan's actions at Malakor V were unconscionable, but the crew is pretty forgiving. Zalbar stands by Revan because he swore life debt to the, the person who helped lead the Wookiees out of slavery, not, not who Revan once was. Mission Vow is likewise inclined to trust Revan because he saved her life on Terrace and because she doesn't see a Dark Lord standing before her, but a friend. Mission is far too trusting, but it's still nice to hear that we're friends. T3 will stick by Revan because his programming requires it, while Jolie ben- Bendo seems totally unbothered by by the revelation, uh, claiming that he knew Revan's secret the entire time, but it wasn't his place to say anything. Juhani is likewise totally understanding of Revan's past, as she also fell to the dark side and was later redeemed by a guy who turned out to be a Sith Lord. There's a lot of shades of gray here. Lots. Uh, HK-47, of course, accepts Revan, but is distressed by his creator's newfound concern for life. Revan learning about his past identity somehow triggered a homing signal that worked to restore a deleted uh, memory core in HK-47. If Revan questions that load of nonsense when others are present, Jelly Bindo will point out that it was the will of the Force for Revan to find his old droid again. Thanks to the restored memory core, HK-47 now remembers that Revan built him in 3959 and his final mission into Mandalorian space in 3957. Kandra Sordo is, if anything, an even more enthusiastic supporter of Revan after learning of his past because he's nothing if not a Revan fanboy. Ordo was at Malachor V. He saw Revan's victory and knew that the Mandalorians had been beaten by the best, which is all they ever wanted. So that only leaves Karth, who, try as he might, can't bring himself to hate Revan. 
Yes, Darth Revan obviously did a lot of bad in the past, but the new Revan has proven himself so far, though though Karth still doesn't trust him. Before we continue on to Korriban, we're going to have to take a brief detour to discuss the Sith attack on Dantooine, which occurred while we were on Manan. Earlier in our adventure, the Jedi Enclave assured Revan that the Enclave was too well defended to be attacked by the Sith, an opinion that Bastila also shared at the time. Even at the time, this reasoning sounded preposterous as Dantooine had little in the way of defenses and the Enclave was one of the largest structures on the planet at the time. The planet is shown as one of rolling hills and grasslands with a few mountains, but really nothing in the way of defense. Shortly before the attack, the Jedi Masters on Dantooine were warned via a disturbance in the Force and were able to escape before those attacks. Masters Vandar Toker, Vruklamar, Dorak... Sar Lestin and Disra Lur Jata all survived, along with a few other Jedi and citizens who could flee the bombardment, but that was about it. In Knights of the Old Republic 2, we will learn that most of the Jedi historical materials have been evacuated to a secret academy on Telos 4 earlier in the Jedi Civil War in case of a possible attack. Those who couldn't flee either died under the Sith Barrage or suffered under a brutal Sith occupation that lasted for a couple of years following the attack. Darth Malak singled out the Rakatan ruins for destruction in a vain attempt to stop anyone from finding a way to the Starforge. The Jedi Enclave was partially destroyed and was left to collapse in on itself by the inhabitants of Dantooine who blamed the Jedi and Sith for their plight. Thousands of Dantooine civilians died in the attack, and hundreds of Jedi were unable to escape as turbolasers rained down on the Jedi Enclave. It seems likely that every Jedi we meet on Dantooine perished, including Belaya, Johanni's love interest. Though it's unconfirmed, so fingers crossed that Belaya survived and lived long enough to die at Qatar in 3952. In case you haven't noticed, the number of Jedi continues to dwindle, and the Jedi Civil War will be the definition of a Pyrrhic victory. We're going to make one more brief detour, because once we find the fifth star map, it's onto the Starforge system, and that's the end of the game. In the meantime, we're heading to the Yavin system to visit Suvin Tam, the sole proprietor and occupant of Yavin Station. If you've played Knights of the Old Republic a few times and you don't remember a place called Yavin Station, that's totally understandable. Uh, Yavin Station was a piece of downloadable content for KOTOR that became available after the game's initial release on Xbox in 2003. The reason you not, might not be familiar with it is that many of the current versions of KOTOR don't include Yavin Station and it's not available as a separate DLC anymore. While the DLC is at its core, while the DLC at its core adds just one new in-game merchant and a small bazaar, he's a damn good merchant. Suvan Tam is a Rodian who sells some of the game's best gear from his one-stop shop on Yavin Station, a space station orbiting Yavin Prime. If it's available, if it's available, this should probably be the player's first stop after venturing off Dantooine for the first time, because Suvan pays top dollar. Sure, he's an eccentric, but he, he pays 65% of the base cost of the item of any item the player wishes to sell, which is more than double the next best merchant in the game. Additionally, Suvan will give the player a 20% discount on any purchases if they beat him 10 times in Bazak. 
At first, the Evan Station only has six items for sale, but as Revan discovers more star maps, the selection grows, but so does the trouble. If Revan visits after finding the star map, the third star map, Suvan is being harassed by a couple of Trandoshan thugs, but the real trouble happens after discovery of the fifth star map. Seven Trandoshans infiltrate the station and decloak just after Revan arrives. Despite tossing thermal detonators at him in droves, Revan dispatches the Trandoshans, causing Tam to open up his special stash, which includes the two best lightsaber crystals in the game. Suvin Tam and Yavin Station are also a convenient excuse to mention some of the best and most distinctive weapons, armor, and items in Knights of the Old Republic, which we haven't discussed yet. The item descriptions also provide some of the best lore in the game. For example, one of the game's best belts is Calrissian's Utility Belt, which was owned by Galdurin Calrissian, a smuggler in the Old Republic. Items also served as our introduction to Cassus Fett, who was believed dead by the time of the Jedi Civil War, but made a number of cameos during the Knights of the Old Republic comics. In Knights of the Old Republic, the player can purchase Cassius Fett's Heavy Blaster and Cassius Fett's Heavy Armor, which has the highest possible defense bonus of any armor in the game. The best gear isn't restricted to the ancestors of original trilogy characters, however, as many references to Tales of the Jedi are also found in descriptions. On Korriban alone, the player can purchase Exar Kun's Light Battlesuit, Craft Heavy Armor, Craft Holy Blade, and Craft Holy Armor. Meanwhile, Naga Sadao's Poison Blade and Marka Ragnos's gauntlets can be looted from their respective tombs on Korriban. Two additional craft melee weapons can be found or purchased on Tatooine, and one can be found on the corpse in the Shadowlands of Kashuk. Next are the items from the Great Hunt side quest, including the circlet of Sures that is dropped by the Tarenta Tech on Kashyyyk, and Keldroma's robes in the caves on Korriban. You might have assumed the robes belong to Ula Keldroma for obvious reasons, but the description makes it clear they were actually his cousin Duron's Jedi robes. Speaking of robes, later in the game, the player can find Darth Revan's robes and the Starforge robes. Both were created by the mystical power of the Starforge and are the best robes available in Knights of the Old Republic. Strangely, the only named lightsaber in the game belongs to Darth Malak, but it can only be obtained by using console commands on PC. It's a red, dual-faced lightsaber and a little longer than the others in the game. After those brief diversions, the Ebon Hawk arrives on Korriban in search of the fifth star map. As with the others, Revan experiences a vision of the star map's location on Korriban. This one appears to be locked within some sort of tomb, which is surprising given that Korriban is a Sith tomb world. No word on if Bastil received the same vision during her captivity, but this is the first time Revan hasn't had her around to talk about the visions. Though even if she were on board, Bastil wouldn't be able to, to depart the ship for fear of being recognized. As Revan is left to contemplate the vision alone, the ship docks at Dresday, Dreshday, the only settlement on the Sith homeworld. Immediately off the ship, there's a helpful mechanic who knows the Ebon Hawk on sight. The mechanic says the ship made weekly visits to Korriban for a year when it was owned by Davik Kang in the Exchange. Revan also learns that he will have to go through the Sith Academy to find the star map because that's the only exit from Dreshday. 
Moving along, Revan is greeted by a Twi'lek named Zyagram, who knows of a premium merchant operating out of the cantina in Dreshde named Mika Doran. Zyagram only appears after the reveal aboard the Leviathan, even though he's been working in the background for some time. Indeed, Zyagram knows a lot about the Ebonhawk and Revan. Zyagram and Mika did business as independent operators with each of the previous owners of the Ebonhawk, Fori Haxa, Ahida Othar, and most recently David Kang. However, they were reluctant to approach Revan directly after he stole the Ebonhawk because he wasn't a member of the exchange and they didn't know how he'd respond. Thus, Zyagram followed reports of the Hawk, caught up to it at our last stop, placed a tracker on the ship, and used, this, used his sources within the Sith fleet to find out Revan's identity. On the one hand, that's some really good detective work. On the other, we should really scan the ship for tracking devices. Zyagram also says that there were a number of summary executions within the Sith fleet as punishment for the Ebon Hawk's escape. Revan thanks Zyagram for his assistance and goes to the Treshde Cantina called The Drunk Side to meet Mika. It's a fantastic name for a cantina, um, The Drunk Side. Um, so Mika, who is honestly a pretty shitty merchant, he charges a 50% premium on everything, though he does sell some nice, unique gear. Zyagram is really the more interesting of the two, but at least they both oppose Darth Malak. Revan then heads back to the Iban Hawk and grabs Johanni to trigger her companion loyalty quest. This side quest is the first mention of the massacre of Cathar by the Mandalorians. That event would later serve as the catalyst for Jedi entry into the Mandalorian Wars and the origin of Revan's mask. After many conversations, Revan is able to piece together Jahani's tragic backstory. Jahani's parents fled Cathar as the world formally surrendered, leaving on one of the last ships to escape before the Mandalorians committed genocide, killing 90% of the Cathar in the galaxy. Sadly, Jahani's childhood didn't get much better as her parents settled on Terrace, which wasn't exactly friendly to non-humans. You'll recall that we witnessed at least three hate crimes there in the span of a couple of days, one of which was committed by small children. Jahani hated living on Terrace because of the space racism, but at least she had her parents to rely on. In 3963, the Mandalorians invaded and eventually occupied Terrace, and they brought their hatred for the Cathar with them. One Mandalorian in particular, a purple Twi'lek named Zor, was especially cruel to Cathar, and one day goaded Jahani's father into a fight and killed him. Jahani's mother did her best to keep them fed, but she became gaunt for malnourishment, often foregoing meals so Johanni could eat, and taking loans from the exchange. Eventually, all those things caught up to the mother, and she passed out while working shifts at the local cantina, and later died because she couldn't afford medical care. To fulfill her mother's debts, Johanni was enslaved by the exchange, and was about to be sold to Zor when Jedi and Republic forces attacked Terrace to root out the invading Mandalorians. Jahani was rescued at the last moment by a Jedi in a strange mask went by the name Revan. I probably made things a bit awkward when Revan's true identity came to light, but Juhani accepted him nonetheless. To be honest, you can't blame her because it was the amnesiac Revan who redeemed Juhani in the ancient grove and a light side Revan saved her on Terrace. Unfortunately for Juhani, her dealings with Zor are far from over. Near the Dreshde docking platform, Zor runs into Jahani and Revan, and he hasn't changed one bit. 
Zor still hates the Cathar, but when he recognizes Juhani from their dealings on Terrace, the insults become far more personal. Zor offers to buy Juhani from Revan, a suggestion that causes Juhani to seethe with rage. Zor then boasts that he was on Cathar during the Mandalorian Massacre, which drives Jahani to threaten revenge for her father and her people. Uh, Revan is able to talk Jahani down from giving in to her rage and again falling to the dark side. Zor departs but vows to goad the daughter as but vows to goad the daughter as he did the father. After this confrontation, Zor will unexpectedly attack Jahani and Revan when they return to the Ebon Hawk or when disembarking from the ship. If you haven't noticed, Zor serves as Zor serves as another test of Jahani's redemption. Will she rise above the need for revenge or give in to her hatred and anger? As Revan and Jahani run back to the Ebon Hawk, Zor and his two Rodian thugs a- attack, staging an ambush. They don't stand a chance against two Jedi, though, as lightsabers make easy work of blasters and vibroblades. Before he dies and makes the galaxy a better place, Zor has one more chance to taunt Jahani into taking the dark path again. The Twi'lek Mandalorian gurgles blood and laughs, saying that he volunteered for the massacre on Cathar to watch the world burn. Jahani came very close to giving in to her rage, holding her lightsaber at Zor's throat, but Revan was able to talk her down. Jahani wouldn't give in to the dark side again, walking away as Zor let out a feeble death rattle. In the end, Jahani was stronger than Zor and was fully loyal to Revan after helping her hold to the light. Location profile, Korriban. The homeworld of both the Sith species and Sith Order, Korriban resides on the far edges of the galaxy in the Outer Rim, hidden within a nearly unnavigable ring of nebulae called the Stygian Caldera. While the Sith Order would eventually rise from Korriban, the Sith species had a much older history on the planet. Sometime before 30,000 before Battle of Yavin, a member of the insectoid Killick species became the Lord of the Sith species and Korban. Around 28,000 BBY, a member of the Sith species named Avas united the warring nations of Korban under one banner and became their king. For 300 years, King Avas ruled with an iron fist and an oversized battle axe, formed by Sith alchemy, and eventually became revered as a god-king by his people. Around 27,700, the Rakuten Infinite Empire was drawn to Korriban's strong force signature, but didn't immediately invade. Instead, they attempted to work with King Adas and play the part of technological benefactors and taught the Sith leader some of their technology, including the knowledge for building holocrons. However, King Ada saw through the Rakuten ploys an attempt to enslave his people, and the war began. In the final battle, King Adas, now well over 300 years old, led a massive army of Sith against the Rakuten invaders. When the dust settled, Adas lay dead and the Sith had driven off the Infinite Empire, but it was done at the cost of their homeworld. Korriban had been turned into an uninhabitable wasteland filled with little more than dust and sand. Though the Sith were able to use some downed Rakuten starships to flee to Ziost, Tund, and Malachor V. While the frozen world Ziost would become the new Sith capital, Korriban would always be their homeworld and would soon become a tomb world for their revered dead. In 25,126, Korriban was incorporated into Zim the Despot's Empire 
and was renamed Pesagam until Zim's fall from power a few decades later. Korriban was silent until 6900 BBY when the surviving Dark Jedi who had been exiled following the Hundred Years of Darkness landed. Though Korriban was a necropolis, it was inhabited by some Sith religious fanatics. When the Dark Jedi arrived, they amazed the Sith species with their advanced uses of the Force and were welcomed as gods by the locals. After consolidating power on Korriban, the Dark Jedi formed a new Force religion to counter Jedi teachings, calling it the Sith Order. In 5000 BBY, a pair of Republic explorers stumbled upon the Sith Empire by chance, an incident which... Naga Sadao used as a pretense to lead the Sith against the Republic in the Great Hyperspace War. In the aftermath of Sadao's defeat, the Republic launched a retaliatory attack against Korriban, which resulted in genocide with more than 95% of the Sith species being wiped out. Over 1,000 years later, Exar Kun traveled to Korriban, learning much of the Sith. At the outset of the Great Sith War, some of Kuhn's disciples built the Sith Academy on Korriban near the planet's one settlement, Dreshde. In 3993, Jedi Knights Duran Keldroma and Shailenur tried and failed to kill the last Terentatech, which resided in Nagasadao's tomb. The Jedi Order knew of the Sith Academy's continued existence, but did nothing. However, by the time of the Mandalorian Wars, Korriban was again mostly abandoned, and the entrance to the Sith Academy was the only structure still standing. Around 3960, Revan located the coordinates to the world and visited briefly, falling closer to the dark side. In 3959, Darth Revan and Darth Malak traveled to Korriban to find the star map as part of their quest for the Starforge, and then returned in 3958 to oversee reconstruction of the Valley of the Dark Lords and reopen the Sith Academy. Due to their contracts with the Sith Empire, Zerka established, established a massive presence on Korriban at Dreshde. With the reestablishment of a Sith Academy, new helpfuls began to filter in, and by 3956, Uthar Wynn was its leader. Right. That brings us to Canon Alert 33. Way back in Episode 8, Canon Alert 10 explained that the Sith homeworld was known as Moraband in Canon after its appearance in the Clone Wars Season 6 episode, Sacrifice. Background info for that episode stated that the world was ancient and likely to have been had been known by other names in the past, implying that the more familiar name for the Sith world, Korriban, would appear in canon at some point. We didn't have to wait long after that episode as the book Myths and Fables, released in August 2019, confirms that the Sith homeworld was known as Korriban in the days of the Old Republic. There's a small caveat here, though. As the title implies, the nine in-universe stories contained within Myths and Fables seem to be tall tales with some overarching moral implications and a basis in truth. For example, a couple of the stories are about Obi-Wan and Darth Vader, though they contain over-the-top story elements that are obviously exaggerations even in a galaxy where using the Force is a thing. Thus, any info taken from Myths and Fables could very well be one of the untrue or wildly exaggerated aspects of the fairy tale. All that being said, the Korban is introduced as an ancient name for Mormon as part of an intro to the story, Gaze of Stone, so it's probably not one of the false aspects of the story. After dealing with Zor, Revan can finally get down to the business of exploring Dresh Day and finding a way inside the Sith Academy. 
He grabs Jolie Bindo and Kendra Sordo as companions, and they set off together. Outside the Academy entrance, Revan encounters a human named Chardin throwing his weight around, abusing three prospective Sith students. Chardin asks the prospects questions about Sith ideology, and they fail spectacularly. As Revan approaches, Chardin senses another possible Academy entrant and asks what should be done with the three failing prospects. Chardin knows that they must be punished, but can't think of a good method. Jolie replies that a Sith who can't think of a suitably cruel punishment isn't much of a Sith to begin with, which is a valid point. Revan has a few options to free the prospects. He can threaten Chardin, he can use a Jedi mind trick, or he can reveal his true identity, which no one believes, but nonetheless gets the job done for some reason. A dark side Revan can tell Chardin to kill the hopefuls, but that seems a bit harsh given that Chardin was such a shitty teacher. We'll just use Force Persuasion to free the Sith Prospect since it's a light light side choice and shows how weak-minded Shardan was in the first place. Further into the settlement, the Companions are confronted by Lashao and two other Sith students, and two other students from the Sith Academy. Lashao is another person trying to make themselves feel better by harassing the locals in Dresh Day, but she picked the wrong tourist to mess with. Well, she would have if a dark if this was a dark side revenant and this encounter could end could end in violence, which it can't. Instead, Candorous eggs on Jolie's sarcastic responses to Lasa- to Lachelle's condescending questions while Revan tries to defuse the situation with a joke. The joke is always the same, but Revan's success is predicated on his persuade skill being high enough. If it is, Revan lands the delivery of the punchline, causing Lachelle and her friends to erupt in laughter. If not, well, the encounter just goes on, but still can't end in violence. The joke Revan tells is actually a variation of the world's funniest joke, which is in turn based on the joke from a... 1951 sketch show on the British radio comedy program, The Goon Show. The title, World's Funniest Joke, was handed out by Professor Richard Wiseman after a study in 2002 to find the single joke with the widest appeal across cultural, language, and demographic lines. As Revan told it, the joke goes, quote, Two Mandalorians are out in the woods when one of them collapses. He doesn't seem to be breathing and his eyes are glazed. The other guy whips out his communicator and calls his commander. He gasps, My partner is dead. I don't know what to do. The commander says, Calm down. I can help. First, let's make sure your partner is dead. There's a silence. Then a blaster shot is heard. Back on the communicator, the Mandalorian says, Okay, now what? Thus endeth the joke. Regardless of the outcome. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not a bad joke. I just don't understand. (laughs) I feel making that the world's funniest joke says more about the person evaluating it than the actual. I mean, yeah, it was like a... It was a, it was like a professor, I think at like Hertfordshire or something like that. So I don't know, maybe the, uh, maybe, maybe it's only funny to, you know, the, uh, that upper crust, uh, British, British sense of humor that I see that I don't seem to have for some reason. It is, um, it's extremely waspy for sure. Um, so regardless of outcome of Revan's <laughs> foray into stand-up comedy, he still needs to find a way into the Sith Academy. 
which blocks the path to the Valley of the Dark Lords. Mika Doran says that the Sith are performing major excavations of the ancient ruins in the valley, and that's the likely place to find the star map on Korriban. You can't even fly to the valley, according to a local pilot. You have to go through the academy one way or the other. To access the Sith Academy, Revan must be approved as a hopeful by a Twi'lek Sith named Euthura Bon. Revan can either lie to Bon about wanting to join the Sith or be declined and go to retrieve a medal. Lying your way is surprisingly easy, but getting a medallion is more fun. After being denied by Euthura, four Sith thugs show up and block the way to the Ebon Huck. The fight is quick and brutal as Revan, Jolie, and Kendris make short work of the supposed tough guys and grab a Sith medallion. Revan returns to Yathuraban, produces the medallion, and is allowed to enter the Academy as a hopeful. You'd think Revan would be inside the Academy by now, but there are just too many Sith students who like to abuse prospective Sith in Dresh Day. Mikkel is just the latest example. He told five prospective Sith that he would sponsor whoever stands outside the entrance to the Academy the longest without food, water, or shelter. In truth, Mikkel is just humiliating them for his own sick pleasure, and two of the original five have already died from exposure and the occasional beatings that Mikkel administers. Wow, this guy really sucks, and we haven't even gotten to the worst part. One of the prospective Sith is an Aqualish, the aliens who look like they have butts for mouths. Uh, uh, Ponda Baba is the guy that gets his arm cut off in the cantina in A New Hope is uh, is an Aqualish. Um, there are only like three total Aqualish Force sensitives in all of Legends, and Mikkel is out here abusing one of them. Not on our watch. True, it's also morally repugnant to do this to anyone, but we take species that are rarely Force-sensitive seriously on the show. Mikhail claims that this is a test, but Revan openly disdains his abject cruelty with Candorus and Julie agreeing that shooting them would be easier and quicker if death is the goal. Revan challenges the Sith student to kill the prospects or let them leave, but Mikhail won't do it. He just meekly threatens the companions and sulks back toward the academy. Revan tries to convince the remaining prospects to give up their dreams of becoming Sith, but the results are mixed. Two of the prospects collapse and die from Mikkel's cruelty, though one of them did listen to reason and try to flee before collapsing. Thankfully, the Aqualish Force-sensitive can be convinced to give up his dreams and flee Dresh Day by lies or persuasion. Uh, this is as good a place as any, as any to introduce Revan's redemption to her through Korriban. By the end of this visit, it's not an understatement to say that every Sith at the Academy will either be redeemed by Revan or dead by his hand. Revan's so keen on redemption, he even helps the spirit of a long-dead Sith Lord find peace in the Nether Realm of the Force. We'll keep a running counter of all the redemptions, and that makes the Aqualish Force-sensitive number one. Finally, Revan is ready to enter the Sith Academy and is accompanied by Uthurabon, his sponsor. Though if Revan failed to redeem Jahani and killed her on Dantooine, he would encounter and fight Belaya, who turned to the dark side after Jahani's death. Revan's companions are allowed in under the guise of being his personal slaves, which is awkward to say the least. Inside, Revan is introduced to Uther Wynn, Uthura's Sith Master, and the Headmaster of the Sith Academy, 
Wynne is a humanoid who is covered from head to toe in Sith tattoos and immediately notices Revan's potential in the Force. The other hopefuls present, Lashao, Mekel, and Chardin, are less impressed. Those jerks were out in Dresda humiliating people, and they aren't even enrolled at the Academy, they're just hopefuls like Revan. One of the fun things about Korriban is that Revan can openly trash the Sith, and Uthar Wynne will agree. When Uthar asks what preconceptions Revan has about the Sith, he can answer that he's killed too many Sith to worry about it. Instead of chastising Revan for discounting the Sith, Wynne congratulated Revan, saying that defeating many Sith is an impressive feat, and they deserve their fate because of their weakness. Wynne describes the Jedi view of the Force as a burden, not a gift as the Sith view it. The Sith Headmaster implores the Hopefuls to embrace what makes them powerful in the Force because only one of them would be admitted to the Academy that year. Uthar encouraged Revan to let the kernel of darkness in his heart grow into something truly great. As the group breaks up, the Hopefuls are encouraged to fight for their destiny or die trying. Revan and his companions get acquainted with their quarters and then learn about the prestige system. By committing impressive deeds and finding Sith artifacts in the Valley of the Dark Lords, Revan can earn enough prestige with Uthar Wind or Uthuraban to gain entry to the Tomb of Naga Sadao. That's one of four available tombs in the valley and the location of the star map Revan and Malak found in 3959. Only Uthar Wind has access to the tomb and Uthura wants Revan's help betraying and killing her master to become headmaster of the academy. Prestige isn't very hard to come by, and most of it comes down to who Revan wants to help. Uh, Yathura has plans to double-cross her master, but Revan can tell Uthar of his student's intent and get in on a double-double-cross of Yathura. When asked Revan to poison Yathura Bond just before their duel, making her easier to kill. Revan is tasked with taking Wins data pad to Adinus, who will then go to Dreshde to find the ingredients for the poison, but he can instead choose to double, double, double cross Uthar and tell Yathura of the new plot. This is the best course of action because it gains a lot of prestige, and Yathura will be redeemed by Revan before all of this all of this is over, so we might as well help her. Also, Revan doesn't get as many dark side alignment shifts on Korriban, so he's free to gain even more prestige by completing dubi- ethically dubious tasks. For example, after Revan tells Yuthura of her master's double cross, he should agree to poison Uthar by sneaking into his room and planting a small Sith device on his pillow. Revan will take most of the chances to gain prestige, though some must take a backseat to his goal of redeeming all the Sith because it's a light side choice. Within the halls of the Academy, Revan encounters a young human named Kel Agwin, who is having some serious doubts about the Sith. Turns out Kel is not as corrupted by the dark side as other students, causing him to doubt Sith teachings and his place at the Academy. Revan encourages Alguin to consider joining the Jedi Order, which he does if Korriban is visited before the escape from the Leviathan. Oddly enough, however, Kel Agwin never makes it to Dantooine or to rejoin the Jedi elsewhere because he dies in the battle that erupts after Revan's true intentions are discovered. Of all the characters that Revan meets, we don't know why Kel received 
this specific mention in the official Star Wars encyclopedia confirming he died in the fighting in the canonical playthrough. Whatever the case, Kel Alguin is redemption number two for Revan, even if he died trying to escape. The next chance to gain prestige finally allows Revan to explore some of the Valley of the Dark Lords, one of the most interesting locations in Knights of the Old Republic. The valley was built in a large outcropping of rust-colored stone to honor the revered dead of the Sith Empire, separate from the old kings of the Sith species. The valley is lined on both sides with towering statues of robed humanoids bowing their heads, each of which was situated above a tomb. The first Dark Lord of the Sith, Ajunta Paul, was buried in a ziggurat-style mausoleum at the center of the valley with most of the other tombs built into the valley's walls. However, many of the monuments and tombs were destroyed or lost under rubble during the Republic desolation of Korriban, during the waning moments of the Great Hyperspace War in 5000 BBY. It wasn't until 3958 that the Valley of the Dark Lords was rediscovered, excavated, and rebuilt under Revan Sith Empire. Despite these efforts, much of the valley had been lost to the bombardment, time, and grave robbers. Beyond the Valley of the Dark Lords in one direction lie the unending wastes of Korriban, while the shadow of the Sith Academy looms over the other side. By 3956, in the events of Knights of the Republic, only four tombs had been reopened, those belonging to Ajuntapal, Tulak Horde, Marka Ragnos, and Naga Sadao. The tomb of Sadao was the last to be built, and wasn't ever used after Sadao perished on Yavin 4 and the Republic laid waste to Korriban within days of Sadao's death. Later excavations would also uncover the tombs of Ludacris and Zoxan, though they are unavailable in Knights of the Old Republic. So let's briefly introduce the long-dead Sith Lords who to- whose tombs Revan will raid like some sort of Force-sensitive Indiana Jones or Laura Croft. Ajunta Paul. Paul was the leader of the Dark Jedi exiled from the Jedi Order at the end of the Hundred Years' Darkness, who eventually landed on Korriban in 6900 BBY. After the Dark Jedi subjugated the Sith species, Paul was declared the first Dark Lord of the Sith. Ajunta ruled for an unknown number of years from the new Sith capital, Zyost, and greatly expanded Sith territory in the far reaches of the Outer Rim. After his death, Paul's spirit remained moored to his tomb on Korriban, unable to escape or find rest for more than 3,000 years. Within the tomb, Revan can find the sword of Ajunta Paul and speak with the spirit of the founder of the Sith Order. Tulak Horde ruled at an unknown time many years before 5600 BBY. He was considered one of the greatest lightsaber duelists in history and led massive armies in battle wearing a fearsome black mask that Revan can loot from his dusty bones. A horde of Tukata have nested within the tomb as well. Utharwin tells Revan to stop an old hermit who has been causing trouble while hiding out in the cave. Tulak Horde was created for Knights of the Republic, but is fleshed out in greater detail in the Old Republic massively multiplayer online game. Marco Ragnos ruled from 5100 to 5000 BBY and is the only Sith Lord to ever die of old age. His funeral opens the comic Tales of the Jedi, The Golden Age of the Sith, 
and he would later be summoned from the nether realm of the forest to bestow the title of Sith Lord upon Exar Kun and Ulit Keldroma in 3997. Revan can earn prestige by entering his tomb and taking care of a rogue assassination droid. Naga Sadao ruled for less than a week in 5000 BBY, died in exile in an unknown year. He's the Dark Lord who led the Sith to war against the Jedi and Republic in the Great Hyperspace War in 5000 BBY, killing billions in mere hours. Sadao fled when the Republic counterattacked, dying on Yavin 4. His tomb was built around the star map and contains the remains of Jedi Knight Shayla Nur and a Tarentatech. Revan must acquire prestige in order to be deemed worthy to enter. You can check out episodes three and four if you want to refresh your memory of Naga Sadao. And and who wouldn't, really? Revan still needs a lot of prestige to enter Sadao's tomb. All he's done to this point is agree to a bunch of double crosses and find the location of a Mandalorian weapons cache from a Sith prisoner. Revan can torture the Mandalorian and administer a truth serum to extract the info, or he can agree to free the Mandalorian and get the location with all that, that without all that torture business. Revan administered enough serum to make the Mandalorian uh, catatonic and appear dead so that the Sith would dump the body, allowing him to escape after recovering. He then used the weapons cache location to gain prestige from Uthar Wynn and got a little more from reciting the Code of the Sith. Now, Revan ventures out out of the Sith Academy, headed toward the Valley of the Dark Lords with Jahani and Cartho Nassi, but the journey is treacherous, leading them into the sh- leading them first into the Shirak Caves. Near the entrance, our heroes find some renegade Sith that Master Uthar had mentioned and maybe killed for prestige. As you can guess, Revan talks to the three rebel Sith that include two green Twi'leks and a human named Thalia May. Dahlia explains that they fled Uthar Wen's wrath after refusing to kill a large group of people, but they can't flee any further now because of the cave creatures. Revan offers to carve through the beast so that the renegade Sith can meet their getaway ship. Unsurprisingly, the Shirak caves are full of Shiraks, which are winged natives of Korriban and sort of resemble pterodactyls, but are even meaner. I mean, we don't know if pterodactyls are really mean. That's editorializing on my part. I shouldn't do that. (laughs) Um, The companions make short work of these flying beasts, but that's only the first obstacle. Revan soon finds even more trouble in the form of a Tarentatek, the same one that killed Duran Keldroma 37 years earlier. Revan, Jihani, and Karth are more successful, however, killing the creature using master the master lightsaber throw ability because f- force immunity doesn't make you immune to a lightsaber to the gut. The companions all kill also kill a trio of Shirak worms to finally clear out the way for Talia and friends. Talia thanks Revan profusely and says that they will seek the light after fleeing. That's three more redemptions on the board. We're up to five total. Revan will later tell Uther Wynn that his problem with renegade Sith has been well taken has been taken care of, which is true from a certain point of view. Wynn is none the wiser, and Revan gains even more prestige. Before the companions leave the caves to arrive at the Valley of the Dark Lords, Revan retrieves the data pad and robe of Duran Keldroma, which will be useful when we can enter Naga Sadao's tomb. 
Finally, Revan and his companions enter the Valley of the Dark Lords, and Johanni is met by a familiar face. Her old friend, Dak Vesser, who fled the Jedi Enclave on Dantooine to join the Sith. Dak and Johanni both became disaffected with the Jedi around the same time, and became best friends because of it. Vesser was eventually ready to flee to Korriban, but Johanni hadn't gone that far yet, and declined. Dak also told Johanni he loved her, but she rebuffed him because she's a lesbian, but wished to remain friends. Vesser didn't take the rejection well, and is still resentful after however many years it had been. Johanni and Dak speak and relay their history together, but Vesser admits he doesn't really like Korriban or the Sith and is running away again. Revan and Johanni encourage him to return to Dantooine if it's still around, and the and the Jedi, but Vesser is unsure. At least he seems to have made peace with Jahani's rejection by the time he leaves and promises not to reveal Revan's identity to the Sith. Dax probably not headed back to the Jedi, but we got him away from the Sith, so we'll count it as Revan's sixth redemption, albeit a gray one. Moving to the right in the valley, Revan and the gang arrive in the tomb of Tulak Horde, where Lashao is waiting. Revan agreed to help locate an ancient corrupted Jedi holocron that lies within a Tuk'ata nest. The Tuk'ata are force sensitive on some level, but mostly they are just vicious hound-like creatures who are easily dispatched at the end of a lightsaber. Revan and Lashao slay the queen and retrieve the holocron, but Lashao attempts to betray her fellow student and take the prestige for herself. So Revan makes the light side choice by insisting that they return the artifact together, until Lashao attacks and Revan can kill her in self-defense and take the holocron and the prestige. That's the Jedi way. The other disturbance in Tulak Horde's tomb is far more dangerous. As Revan and his companions are trying to unseal the sarcophagus of Tulak Horde, they unwittingly triggered a trap that filled the room with noxious gas until they passed out. When Revan awakens, he finds himself restrained next to fellow Sith hopeful Mikkel, who is restrained and looking quite the worse for wear. Their captor is the old hermit that Uthar Wynn asked Revan to take care of, the former headmaster of the academy, Jurak Ulm. Jurak was deposed by his apprentice, Uthar Wynn, shortly after Darth Revan and Darth Malak reopened the academy on Korriban. Ulm's mental health had been failing, and he had become obsessed with rekindling the power of the Sith Lords of old. After his ouster, Jarak sought refuge in Tulak Horde's tomb and began to capture unwary Sith to test, to test them against one another in torture games to find out who was the most like the ancient Sith. Revan and, Kel- Revan and Mikkel are his latest victims, but they will also be his last. Jorak explains that he will ask five questions on Sith ideology to Revan. For every question Revan answers correctly, Jorak will administer Force Lightning to Mikkel, but for every answer Revan gets incorrect, he receives the Force Lightning. Revan can obviously answer all... No, I'm sorry, can answer right on purpose and get Mikkel killed. But that's absolutely not happening because of the Redemption Tour. Getting more than three questions right will also kill Mikkel, so Revan has to be careful. When both students are still alive at the end of five questions, Mikkel uses the Force to free Revan who kills Jorak Ulm quickly in a lightsaber duel. When Mikkel asks why Revan would save him after the awful things he did earlier, Revan says that no one deserves to die like that and convinces Mikkel to return to the light. 
while Mikkel thinks the Jedi might not be right for him, he's definitely leaving the Sith and Korriban. Mikkel is Revan's seventh redemption and the second to explicitly seek a gray path forward. On the way out, Revan loots Tulak Hord's Revan loots Tulak Hord's battle mask and grabs Drak On's tablet to return to Master Wind for even greater prestige. In comparison to the commotion in Tulak Hord's tomb, the tomb of Marka Ragnos is relatively uneventful. It's totally populated by droids and only has one shot for prestige by repairing or destroying a rogue assassination droid. After dispatching the other droids, Revan finds the rogue droid within Ragnos' sarcophagus. The assassination droid wants to be free of his assassination protocols because they counteract with the affinity for human life he developed after the Sith didn't fully restrain his AI. Revan can fight and destroy the droid easily, but the repair is a simple minigame and the light side choice, so that's what we're doing. The repairs take little time and the rogue droid flees the planet. That only leaves the tomb of Ajunta Paul to be explored. Situated in the center of the valley, Paul's tomb is unlike the others in that it has no defenses or traps, just the spirit of the founders of the Sith Order. In the sarcophagus, Revan meets the spirit of Ajunta Paul, but instead of a domineering Sith Lord, Revan finds a feeble, exhausted wreck, an old spirit waiting to die and filled with regret. Paul says that his spirit has been tethered to the tomb since his physical death some 3,000 years before. The original Dark Lord says that where he once felt hatred and anger toward the Jedi, he's now only filled with regret. The spirit's memory is failing now, but he clearly remembers how the Sith brought more destruction on themselves than the Jedi ever could by infighting and petty power struggles. When Revan asks the spirit why it remains on Korriban, Paul replies that he is kept in place by his sword, which poured his hatred and pride into which he poured his hatred and pride into during life. If Revan takes Paul's sword from the tomb, he will be able to move, but there's a catch. Ajunta's sarcophagus holds three swords, and Revan must choose the one that truly belonged to the Dark Lord. If he chooses poorly, Ajunta Paul will fight Revan to the death. Lest you think this is like where Indiana Jones was trying to choose the Holy Grail and it was the least ostentatious cup, Paul's sword is black steel covered in Sith runes. Revan didn't choose poorly. The spirit of Ajunta Paul begs Revan to depart with the sword, but before leaving, the Jedi asks the Dark Lord to return to the light and find eternal peace. The ancient spirit scoffed, saying that his betrayal could never be forgiven, but Revan convinced him otherwise. Moving much closer to the light side, Revan persuaded the first Dark Lord of the Sith to renounce the darkness and once again embrace the light. After nearly 3,000 years of unending torment and madness, the founder of the Sith Order returned to the light and became one with the Force. As his spirit was fading away to find peace, Ajunta Paul recalled the Jedi Master he had betrayed and hoped he could see him once more to beg forgiveness. Revan's eighth redemption on Korriban has, has to be the greatest of all time, the founder of the religion of his enemies in an eternal holy war. That's no small feat. Ajunta Paul also cryptically hints at the secret source of the Sith of Sith power, one of the many references being pl- being placed that was supposed to be explained in Knights of the Old Republic three. Ugh, sigh, but we'll get to that. 
As the companions make to leave the tomb, they are confronted by Chardin, who was waiting for Revan to do the hard work to get Paul's sword and then kill him for it. I'm sorry, there's no chance of that happening, but Revan can give him the wrong, one of the wrong swords of the three he collected and let Chardin return that to Uthar Wynn, who will immediately notice the sword is a fake and chastise Chardin. In this case, Revan wins even more prestige for tricking Chardin and getting the real sword. And as an added bonus, Chardin is banished from the Sith entirely. Returning to the Sith Academy after raiding three of four tombs, Revan speaks with Master Uthar Wynn and Uthara Bon, confirming that he now has enough prestige to enter Nagasadal's tomb. But before we but before we find the final star map, we have to complete the final companion loyalty quest. Finding Dustil Onassi. As you no doubt recall from his character profile, Karth Onassi's life has been pretty much destroyed since the end of the Mandalorian Wars. In 3960, following the Battle of Malachor V, Onassi watched as Revan and Malak took the Republic fleet into the Unknown Regions. Then, two years later, when Revan and Malak returned, sparking the Jedi Civil War, Onassi was betrayed when his mentor and friend, Admiral Saul Karath, defected to the Sith. Later in 3958, Karath led the bombing of Onasi's homeworld, Telos IV, where his wife, Morgana, lived with their son, Dustil. After the attack ended, Karth ventured to the surface and held his dying wife's body, but Dustil was never located after searching for days. He was presumed dead along with millions of others. Following this, Karth became distant and sullen, but he was determined to keep fighting the Sith to take revenge on his former mentor and for the death of his family. In 3956, Onasi served under Jedi Knight Bastila Shan on the Endar Spire when it was yanked from hyperspace above Terrace, and his adventures with the amnesic Revan began. During their travels, Karth opened up to Revan little by little, eventually discussing the horrific deaths of his wife and son. After Revan passed seven dialogue checks and obtained two star maps, Karth's loyalty mission becomes available after he meets an old friend named Jordo. The two catch up briefly about their time in the Telos IV militia before Jordo casually mentions that Dustil survived the bombing, which is huge, and that Dustil joined the Sith after surviving Telos IV, which is also huge in other ways. On the one hand, Karth is believed his family died on Telos IV for years, but now he finds out Dustil is alive and he's Force-sensitive. That's the best news ever. On the other hand, his son has joined the Sith, Karth's sworn enemy. That's very bad news. Now that the companions have finally made it to Korriban, Karth is eager to find Dustil and reunite with his boy. Just remember, if you're playing Knights of the Old Republic, you can't go to Korriban last and do Karth's loyalty quest because it locks out. It's just one of the inconsistencies that shows up with doing a canonical playthrough for a game based on player choice. Back in the Sith Academy, Revan and Karth approach Dustil in the dorms and things get off to a rocky start. Dustil coldly car- calls Karth father and wishes his old man had been blown up in some Republic ship to spare them this awkward reunion. Karth is mortified. He wants to reunite with his son, who he searched for and thought was dead for two years. But Dustil blames his father for abandoning 
him and his mother on Telos 4 and leaving them to die. Distel also blames his dad for his capture by the Sith. He needed Karth there to protect him, but it didn't happen. Karth then tries to drag his son out to escape his supposed brainwashing, but Distel won't back down. Distel likes being a Sith and doesn't believe it when Karth says they're evil conquerors hell-bent on terrorizing the galaxy. Finally, Karth begs his son to flee and not even tell him where, but just doesn't want him to be part of something evil. At this, Distel relented slightly, saying he'd consider it if Karth and Revan provided proof that the Sith are evil. Luckily, Revan already had the proof they needed. It's contained in a data pad stolen from Uthar Wynn's room when Revan was there planting the poison for Uthar Bond. The data pad contains damning evidence against Uthar and the Sith. It seems that Dustil arrived with a woman named Selene, who is also Force-sensitive, but only marginally according to Master Uthar. The Sith had Master believed Dustil to have exceptional strength in the Force, but that his affection for Selene made him weak and slowed his training. Thus, Uthar Wynn had Selene removed from the Academy and murdered, then lied to Dustil about the event, saying that his girlfriend died in the valley. When Revan and Karth returned with the data pad, Dustil had all the proof he needed that the Sith are evil and that they've been lying to him this whole time. Dustil immediately resolves to tell a couple of his friends at the Academy about this so that they can flee together. In the end, Karth and Dustil embrace and promise to meet up on Telos after the world end, after the war ends, which is not happening because Telos 4 is a wasteland. Uh, Karth thanks Revan and becomes fully lo- loyal, which is awkward since this quest has to be completed before the reveal on the Leviathan. Dustil departs to warn his friends and escape Korriban as Revan's ninth redemption. Finally, it's time to enter the endgame on Korriban. Revan has done all the side quests and gained enough prestige that it's time to enter Naga Sadao's tomb, but he'll have to do so without his companions. After a day of meditation, Revan sets out with Uthuraban and Uthar Wynn, who are openly suspicious of one another, though, they can't, though we can't imagine why. At the entrance to the tomb, Revan is told that he must find the star map and retrieve a ceremonial lightsaber to pass the initiation. Once inside, a large stone door closes and seals behind Revan, preventing escape. Up ahead, Revan finds a data pad from another initiate who failed Master Uther's test, and also sees two massive torrent attacks guarding the entrance to the star map. Just one of the beasts is tough enough with a group, but fighting two is difficult even for a Jedi as skilled as Revan. Skirmish is difficult and probably involved Revan running into a hallway that the Tartatex couldn't fit into, either regain force points or hit them with grenades and blaster fire. Revan eventually fells both dark side beasts and discovers a Solari lightsaber crystal and a journal belonging to Jedi Knight Shayla Nur. Normally we detour into the Grey Hunt here, but I'll have to wait until the next episode because we're running along. Revan then finds two special grenades the Pillar of Ice and the Pillar of Fire. According to the star map, Revan then sees the final challenge as he must decide which grenade to use to pass a pool of acid. Obviously, the right answer is ice because the fire one just ignites the acid and kills Revan, ending the game and dooming the galaxy because he was a moron. Using the ice grenade to create a bridge, Revan reaches the fifth and final star map, completing the astrogation chart that leads to the Star Forge. 
On the way out, Revan grabs the Sith lightsaber and finds Uthar and Uthura in a nearby chamber waiting to congratulate their pupil. Sith Master and Apprentice then immediately turn on one another, and the victor is determined by who Revan chose to help. In this case, Uthar Wynn was poisoned by Revan in this too weak, dying at the hands of Uthura Ban. Filled with power, Uthura Ban then turns on Revan and begins dueling her own student, but she's no match. Before Revan can land the killing blow, the Twi'lek Sith ironically begs for mercy. Uthura begs forgiveness and, to her surprise, Revan gives it. She now realizes that there's something very different about Revan, something she first noticed at the drunk side cantina, but didn't understand at the time. Good, the, good boy Revan then prepares his final sermon on Korban, telling Uthura to return to the light and change her ways. At long last, Uthura Bon realized the error of her ways and was Revan's tenth and final redemption. Uthura departed Korriban for Dantooine where Revan could find her in the courtyard. Departing the tomb of Naga Sadal, Korriban is eerily quiet until Revan is approached outside the academy by three Sith apprentices who figured out he's a spy. Once they die, the entire academy turns into a battlefield with every Sith inside turning on Revan, though there aren't a lot of them left, what with all the redemptions and death. To make it off Korriban, Revan has to fight through a handful of Sith soldiers, the guards, any student who hasn't been redeemed, two groups of unnamed Sith teachers, and someone named Tariga. Revan's two lightsabers cut through his enemies like butter, as even the Sith teachers aren't a match for his skill with the blade and the force. In a blur of lightsabers and force lightning, all the Sith lay dead, and Revan lets the Academy out of session permanently. Once Revan exits the Academy, its doors are closed, and none, and none on Dresh Day are aware that a battle had just taken place. We do know that this is the canonical way Revan ended his time on Korriban, as author Drew Carpician confirmed this battle is the same one alluded to in his novel, Darth Bane, Path of Destruction. Revan and his companions have driven the Sith from Korriban for hundreds of years to come and depart in the Ebon Hawk, ready to visit the hidden Starforge system. Oh, thank you all for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we're going to find out what Bastila was doing while we were on Korriban. We finally get to meet the Rakata, and we get to see the glory of the Star Forge. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. You can follow us on Twitter at PhotorPod or email us at PhotorPodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again and may the Force be with you.